Good morning, church. What a beautiful day, right? The sun, just absolutely gorgeous out there. It was in uh, the 60s, I think, when I got here this morning, and don't see that haze and all the smoke anymore out there. Just uh, a, a beautiful day. I want to give some thank yous this morning. Uh, it's been quite the week in our fellowship. Uh, first, I want to thank our fellowship team for the great picnic that we enjoyed last weekend. That was wonderful on Sunday. Thank you, fellowship team. Great time of fellowship, great food, great ice cream, everything, just wonderful. I want to thank Pastor Bob for filling pulpit last week and being available and letting the Lord speak through him and blessing us uh, with the Word of God. And, and I want to thank our VBS decorators. You notice some changes when you walked in today? VBS is close. It's coming uh, just a, a few short weeks. So thank you to the team that Spent a lot of time decorating. You'll notice some dragons around the building. I think a fox, a, a peregrine falcon. It's a very exciting time. And I think next week when you come in, there may be even more changes. Life unravels in a way that presses us towards constant transition and changes. Do you ever feel like things are just moving too fast? Yeah. Sometimes these changes can very much uh, affect the trajectory of our lives, maybe even the lives of our family members. In this past week, just a few that the Lenhart family has experienced, if I go the right way, see Bob, I have trouble with it too, not just you, um, maybe not, there we go, look at that. Like I said last Sunday, Bailey turned 15. Uh, she's rather rebellious because I told her about five years ago she was not allowed to get any older. And uh, she continues to add years. Uh, this is the end of the school year photo. Brighton is now our first driver. And so that is utterly terrifying. Um, if you're here on a Sunday morning and see a GMC Jimmy two-door, run. Run <laughs> the opposite direction. But you know, it's interesting because in the midst of all these changes with Bailey's birthday, I, I came in on Monday to the office, and I walked right into my office, right, right past and put my stuff in, in the fridge, and came back and met with some of the staff, and then I walked back to my office again, and I just felt, I noticed something didn't look or feel right. And as I was walking back to my door, uh, I saw something. Now, maybe the battery's going dead in this. Could somebody bring me a new battery? Uh, that, that's what I saw. Now, we want to talk about changes. Uh, this would certainly be a major change <laughs> were it to happen. But she is quite the, joke, the jokester, that's for sure. A change in life often means that we have to turn away from old ways that were comfortably accepted, followed, and lived in, and move towards new ways, ways that are not always comfortable, uh, easy, or certain. You know, as I was thinking about Brighton getting his driver's license this week and sending him out, it, it's interesting how when the license comes, all of a sudden the independence is like, hey, Dad, I'm going to work. Okay, wait, let me get up and take you there. Oh, wait, I don't have to do that anymore. And, and it's just kind of in and out. And I thought in so many ways this week, some of the ways that I felt paralleled the way that I felt when we first brought Brighton home from the hospital uh, as an infant. I remember his first time coming into the house. We, we laid him in the crib. He's our first. We'd never been parents before. We put him in the crib and we went into the living room, and we looked at each other, and we're like, what do we do now? <laughs> what comes next? When he drove off to work, or to school, on Wednesday, by himself with the other two kids, I just remember thinking, wow, like what, what happens next? This is incredible, and time really flies. The gospel brings transformation, changes, necessary changes that disrupt and reorder and 
reform the things that we once believed were safe, comfortable, and normal patterns of our lives. When, when we laid Brighton in the crib, everything in our life that was safe, that was comfortable, and that was normal was now completely unsettled and disrupted. One word that's associated with the change that the gospel brings is the word repentance. And as we unpack our text today, taking a closer look at the gospel, we're going to be taking a deep dive into investigating the fruit of repentance. Repentance is a character quality. It's a normal attitude and behavior of a person whose life has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And as we will discover today, the word repent is a word that's closely associated or partnered with the proclamation of the good news. And we're going to find repentance produces fruit in the lives of those who are being transformed by the gospel. And this consideration is going to lead us to the question that's going to guide and motivate our study of the scriptures this morning. What does the fruit of true repentance look like in the lives of those who are being transformed by the gospel? Before we move to explore the varying dimensions of this question, let's pause and ask the Holy Spirit to guide as we study the scriptures together today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we need it in our lives now, perhaps more than ever. It is true. It is faithful. And Lord, as we gather around it to study together in this corporate activity, I pray that you would use it. Use it in a way that would captivate us, that would compel us, that would move us beyond the walls of this building as changed individuals. Lord, allow it to bury itself deep into our hearts, into our minds, and to change our behaviors, the way that we think, the way that we move. Lord, we want to love you better, and we want to love the people that you bring into our lives better. We pray that through our study today, you might help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them now and turn them to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, you can turn them on if they're on your phone or device. And it's very interesting, in the Gospels, before we are introduced to Jesus, we rather amusingly meet this unusual man who eats insects, wears camel skins, and shouts out loud in the wilderness. His message, all at once, is powerful, it's curious, and it's also provocative. And we come to know this man as John the Baptist. And his message, if you remember, ultimately leads to his imprisonment and his death by beheading. What was John the Baptist saying that was so disruptive, that was so disturbing to the people who he lived with in his day? I mean... The guy's, the guy's wearing camel fur, he's eating locusts, and he's wandering around the wilderness, ranting on. Why couldn't the people just ignore him? Why couldn't they just write him off or treat him as a local Grinch or hermit? Could it be because his message and the words that he was sent to speak were so offensive, so unsettling, and so obtrusive that people simply couldn't dismiss or ignore them. You see, John's words, they cut right to the heart of anyone who thought that they had nothing to be saved from. Anyone who thought that they had all the power within themselves to save themselves. Those who thought that their own efforts could be good enough. Those who imagine that they might be able to be holy enough, religiously minded enough, or even spiritually privileged enough to merit heaven. 
John's words cut to the heart of them. The heart of his bellowing is found in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 3. Take a look. These are John's words. Matthew chapter 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a very full, yet very simple message. And its profundity is quickly discovered in the number of people who are being changed by it. Watching and witnessing for themselves how this message was bringing both disruption and change to the Jewish community, the religious leaders of the day, they come to find out more. They're curious. What's going on? What are we to make of this weird little man and his message? Of what purpose is his baptism? Why are all of these people all of a sudden confess, confessing their sins to one another? What's going on? And as Matthew chapter 3 unravels the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they approach John, and John greets them. Loving words, right? Do we remember his greeting? Could you imagine? These were the elite religious leaders of his day. Hey, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce some fruit that proves your repentance and quit relying on your so-called privilege as Abraham's children. Your identity and your allegiance are misplaced. Wow. How about that in verse 8? Produce the fruit that proves your repentance. If you don't start producing good fruit soon, the axe first, then the fire is where you're heading. Now, now can we begin to see why John's message was so offensive? Perhaps why it ultimately led to his death? John's leveling the playing field. He's exposing the need of everyone who was living apart from the Messiah. It was a difficult, even a deadly task. Still, friends, this was good news. It's good news for all who would receive it, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it was John's calling to proclaim it until his death. The message is clear. The kingdom of heaven is near. The time for repentance is now. And true repentance produces fruit that proves its authenticity. John's message, it's accomplishing its intended purpose. It's preparing the way for Jesus. It's making straight paths. It's leveling the playing fields. It's a message powerful enough to both provoke the sleeping bear of the comfortable and religious elite while also comforting those who were broken and contrite. There was one who was coming. The very one whom John would reluctantly baptize. Light was dawning. And the message that that light was bringing would be like John's, but with an entirely more powerful and transformative effect. Turn over to chapter 4. And let's read more about this light. Matthew chapter 4. Verse, start in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them life has dawned. You see an image uh, in front of you of what was known as the Via Maris. It was a popular trade route that connected Egypt and the coastal regions of Israel. Jesus is taking up temporary residence in this place called Capernaum. It's highlighted in yellow. It's a fishing city 
of roughly 1,500 to 3,000 people in his day. It's along a route where traders from within Damascus, Syria, and other locations around the region would constantly come and visit. And in Capernaum, Jesus would perform many of the healings that are soon going to become a normal sign that would accompany the good news of his kingdom. We see the healing of the centurion's son in Capernaum, the nobleman's son, and you can see many others on the screen this morning. And while this location was vital to the perpetuation of Jesus' message and mission, his move to Capernaum actually came as a fulfillment to prophecy in Isaiah regarding Messiah's life. Let's take a look. Some of us will remember this. From Isaiah chapter 9. You know what? I'm just going to have you all in the back. If you can help me. Because it's not working today. So uh, Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 2. The gloom will be dispelled for those who were anxious. In earlier times he humiliated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But now he brings honor to the way of the sea. The region beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. And so from within this prophecy, a theme emerges. It's describing the people who are living within this region. What do we learn about the people who are living in this region where Jesus is making his home? What is true about them? We see words like gloom, anxiety, humiliation, Walking in darkness, living in a land of deep darkness. Does any of this sound familiar to any of us who are sitting here today? I don't know about you all, but in in my lifetime, in our lifetime, we've all heard those words used to describe the current past or future state of our own land. What's going on? And church, this hopelessness, it it gives birth to anxiety, feeling as though we need to control or cling to that which we cannot control. And then we grow filled with shame as we thrash about, feeling as though we've failed, struggling to make sense of the world. What is going on? Why can't we make sense of it? Why does it feel so hopeless and lost and dark? All of this stirring fear. We don't like feeling afraid. Does anybody like feeling afraid? I don't like feeling afraid. We don't. We certainly don't like feeling guilt or shame. Nobody would admit to liking that. And so we cover it. Just like they were doing back then, we do it still today. We cover that fear. We cover that guilt. We cover that shame with all kinds of things. Arrogance. Pride. Indifference, I don't care how many of you heard that before. I don't care. Usually when somebody says that to you, the exact opposite is true. How about apathy? What does it matter? What does it matter anyway? Right? We cover it with anger, with bitterness, with hostility, resentment. A people who live in darkness, friends, can grow uselessly dull while they strive to remain hopelessly busy. Does this sound familiar? Uselessly dull, hopelessly busy. When we do not know the light of the world, or worse, when we claim to know him but refuse to turn towards him, we are left with no choice but to try to be a light unto ourselves. To control the uncontrollable, to tame the beast, which is beyond taming. Grasping at that which we sense is vital and important, but we cannot see, and clinging to something we imagine is filled with beauty, but we're wholly unable to experience it. What a dark and hopeless way to stumble through this life. For a people who are sitting in darkness or who are in a region and a shadow of death, 
the dawning of a light can bring great hope. Amen? The prophecy, church, the prophecy is hopeful because a great light has come into the world to save those who could not save themselves. To shine light on those who were living in darkness. What was his message? It's revealed in verse 17. Take a look. You can go to the next slide. From that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Sound familiar? Sound like a message we already heard? It's the same one. Jesus and John are preaching the good news of the kingdom. And both of their messages begin with what word? Repent. Why? Are you curious? I was. Why? Everything, everything in this world tells us that we're good enough. Or that we are enough. Or that we can be enough. That we can be righteous enough. That we can be law-abiding enough. That we can be networked and connected enough. If I just get that one other social media app, then I'm good. I just need Instagram, Mom. Then I'll be good. Entitled enough. Maybe even endowed enough to merit our own salvation. We look around and we find little that would motivate change. Why would we need to change in the first place? The message of the day. You be you. How many of you have heard it? You be you. Or I think the younger kids say, you do you. Change that be to do. You do you. Just be who you are. You don't have to change a thing. Oh. Repentance reveals the need for change. It reveals the truth that we are wholly inadequate and have a great need for one who can be our substitute. Repentance is also the very thing that God uses to initiate and bring about the change and transformation that we all need to experience before we are gifted the right to be called a daughter or a son of God. Only those who are willing to acknowledge their own inability are able to repent. A person who's not willing to acknowledge their own inability cannot be repentant. Only those humble enough to acknowledge that they can't save themselves will repent. And in repentance, friends, we turn away from the lifeless, hopeless, beating against the wind messages of this world, messages that lead to death. And instead, we turn to the light of the world, Jesus, who promises to give us abundant life. Repentance is an important component of God's gracious offer of salvation in Christ. It's an offer that promises forgiveness and reconciliation for all who hear and believe the gospel. It's a change of mind that produces fruit in our lives. And, and I want us to, to work hard today to do something. I had to work hard to do it. I want us to work hard today to, to lay aside maybe traditional ways that we've thought about repentance over the years. For some reason, if maybe you're li not like me, but when, when this word came out uh, this week in the text, I went back to old camp meeting services where I was sitting in sermons that went far too long into the night and pastors that were standing in pulpits doing this a lot and saying, repent, repent. And, and as a child having no idea what any of that meant or looked like, and I just want us to gather from the text today what we see as the fruit of repentance. It's change. When the people heard and believed John's message, what happened? They were baptized. They were baptized as those who were willing to identify with the one who was coming. And they were doing what? They were baptized and then they were confessing their sins. 
as those acknowledging their need for forgiveness. But that is not where the fruit of repentance ends. And I think the mistake that I've made for much of my adult life was believing that repentance was a one-time thing. That it's something that I did, and I did it one time, and then I was baptized, I confessed my sins, and that was it. I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. And I'm learning more and more that repentance is very much a part and parcel of the life of a true disciple. Jesus preaches the same message as John the Baptist. And watch what it does to the first hearers' lives. The trajectories of their lives are radically realigned. Watch what happens. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people. They left their nets immediately and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. Then he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now we have no account of the first disciples' baptisms. We rarely, if ever, hear them confessing their sin. Yet is there any doubt in our minds that this was not a repentant group? Certainly they were. And we can draw these conclusions because the shape and the trajectory of the disciples' lives completely shift when they're confronted with the call of Jesus. Simon and Andrew are running a family fishing business. John and James as well. From other texts, we can gather that Thomas and Nathaniel and Philip also had been fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon, guess, does anybody know what Simon was? He was a zealot. You want to know what a zealot was? This was fun. A zealot was someone who was consumed with trying to overthrow the Roman government and its systems. Woo, know any zealots? Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Shh. Other disciples' professions, they're not identified. Some of them were known by their father, like James, the son of Alphaeus. The gospel writers want us to observe that these were normal, everyday people, much like you and me. These were not people of high-ranking significance in the societies. That they were living and they had jobs like you and I have jobs. They got up, they went to work, they had families, they had loved ones who were depending on them for support. They were probably folks that found their identity in their profession. We are fishermen. We're businesswomen, corporate employees, accountants, farmers, drivers. Some of us are engineers, some technicians, still others work in trades. When somebody meets you for the first time, what's one of the first questions that you get asked? What do you do? All the time. Because what we do in our society, in our culture here in America, is so connected to our identity and who we are. And when Jesus bids us to come and follow the nature of our identity, the primary function of our profession is transformed and reprioritized. These men were fishers of fish. That's what fishers are. Fish consumed them. It was how they provided for their families. And it's Primarily how they oriented themselves within their communities. They were people who fished. Jesus reorients and shifts the priorities of their profession from fishing to people. 
I will make you fishers of people. Church, one of the continual fruits of a lifestyle of repentance is that we go from the mundane order of our work for work's sake to embracing a new purpose and commitment within our professions to use the nature and the order of our work to reach other people purposely and intentionally with the good news of Jesus. You can go to the next slide. Repentance moves us from people who fish for fishing's sake towards becoming people who fish for people's sake. Reaching other people now becomes the priority of our profession. And this initial transformation as the Gospels unfold, it happens immediately. And it also proves that we don't necessarily have to leave our professions or give them up to make a difference for the kingdom. When Jesus died and he was buried, before the disciples realized he had been resurrected, what did they go back to doing? Fishing. They didn't have to give up their professions to follow him. They followed him within their professions. And sometimes in the church, we intentionally or unintentionally promote this idea that in order to really make a difference for the kingdom, we need to leave everything, our current profession, to pursue some form of professional vocational Christian service. But the disciples' example reminds us that making a difference for Jesus can happen today, tomorrow, or the next day in the context of the place that we are currently employed. And friends, I'm a pastor. I'm not saying this to discourage anyone from Christian service. If this is how God's leading you, then this is a good thing. Go, pursue. But I say this rather as an encouragement For all of us working in professions, you know how many people I've had over the years that have come to me in ministry and they said, I'm I'm an engineer. What how can I make a difference for the kingdom? You can tomorrow. There are people who you go to work with every day who are who are there to be loved, who are not there by accident, who God has put there right in front of you to love and to unfold the gospel before them, whether in your words or whether in your actions or behaviors or hopefully some combination of both, whether you're working in a, in a diner as a waitress, serving people, or working in a hospital as a nurse, caring for people. If there is people about, they are there because God has designed for them to be there. They're there with purpose. You can make a difference for Christ right where you are at. We can start prioritizing the people we work with rather than the function of our profession. Oh, I gotta go to work again. Oh, man. What if you woke up the next morning and you were like, you, you got your briefcase and you're like, man, I'm going to see Max today. Man, I, got, I had a great conversation with Max yesterday. I gotta keep that up, you know? I, how different... It's not about what we do. That profession. When we value the people with whom we work above the work we are doing, our places of employment become fields for planting, for watering, and for reaping a harvest. One of the continual and consistent fruits of a lifestyle of repentance is not falling into the trap of seeing our profession or place of employment as simply a place of work, but rather a place where we find ourselves on mission for God and His kingdom. And another continual fruit of repentance is that we're careful not to shape or define the nature of our identity in accordance with what we do, but rather in accordance with with who Jesus has called us to be. Here's a way this text challenged me this week when I was reading it. When someone says, who are you or what do you do? I often say I'm a pastor or I'm a coach. Maybe you say I hang drywall or maybe you say I haul pigs for a living or milk goats or whatever it might be. I don't know. Whatever it was, whatever it is, 
What if our answer started with, I'm a follower of Jesus who gets to pastor or shepherd his people. I'm a follower of Jesus who hangs drywall. I'm a follower of Jesus who farms. I'm a disciple of Christ who works in an office with other people. What would yours be? Reordering the priorities within our profession is only one of the enduring fruits of a lifestyle of repentance. Jesus takes it a step further in our text, doesn't he? He moves them away from fishing, but he also moves them away from something else. What else does he move them away from? They're now fishers of people. They're leaving behind their boats. But what else are they leaving behind? The clues in verses 21 and 22, James and John, they're brothers. They're both identified as the sons of Zebedee. And friends, verse 22 is where it gets super hard and really scary for all of us. Because the fruit of true repentance is not always sweet and juicy. It's not often low-hanging. It will regularly require us to move from places of comfort and security towards spaces that on the outside are going to feel uncomfortable and insecure. They immediately left their boat, their profession, and their father, their family. So the priorities in their profession are reordered, and the priorities in their relationships are reordered, and they followed Jesus. I'll always be known as the son of Rick and Dawn Lenhart, the husband of Sheila, the father of... I won't spare you the list, but you get the idea. And these are titles that we can be proud of. Titles that give us a sense of identity and purpose, a sense of security and comfort in this tumultuous world that we find ourselves living in. But they're also titles, father, husband, son. They must be placed beneath our allegiance and our loyalty to Christ. And you know what? As your pastor, I'm going to stand up here today and just tell you, friends, it's going to take me my entire time here on this earth to figure out how to do this well. I want to be a dad. And I want to do it right. And I want to get my marriage right. But I have to continually remind myself that they're not going to be right if they're not submitted to Christ. He must be first. And that, that, if we're honest with ourselves, every day, every minute, that is hard. Not only had James and John found a sense of comfort in their profession, but it was a profession that they enjoyed with their father. How much better the sense of their identity was bound to him. And Jesus calls, they turn, they follow. Friends, when Jesus calls us, we're a child of God through Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the fruits of a lifestyle of continual repentance is that we remain mindful that following God may at times make it look like we despise our father, mother, sister or brother, not because we truly despise them, but because Jesus' purposes and his direction becomes our first order of priority. And sometimes what Jesus calls us towards will disrupt or unsettle plans that may have been assumed or even established within our inner family relationships. I'm sure James and John's dad did not have it on the family business's agenda for James and John to get out of their boats and to chase after Jesus. Who's going to take over the business? This isn't supposed to be how it works. It's not just that the nature of the disciples' professions had been upended by their calling, but also their loyalty towards the ones that they loved the most had been reordered. And as we reflect on these changes, we discover that repentance is so much more than we may have first considered. 
When we turn to Jesus and follow him and pursue his ways, we turn away from so very much. You can go to the next slide. In our baptism, we're turned away from our identity as children of darkness and death and become children of light and life. Our identity is now firmly fixed and publicly established in Christ. In the regular and habitual confession of sin, we turn away from attitudes of pride and arrogance and indifference and apathy, and we turn towards humility and meekness and lowliness and sacrifice. In turning toward the priority of people in the fields where God plants us, we turn away from mundane purposelessness or going through the motions in our professions. I call it autopilot. In turning away from her identity as children of this or that person or part of this or that family, we are rehearsing and practicing our presence and adoption into the family of God as daughters and sons of the living God through Jesus. What follows a life that is continually and consistently producing the fruit of repentance is exciting. But it's not easy. I got invited to do the shortest night trail run again the other night. Why I do it every year, I don't know. But I run up gigantic hills from 9 to midnight. And there were some other CNBCers there with us this year. And it was fun. Stephen was there. And Noah was there. And Brighton and a bunch of the Rishels were there. And Stoltzfuses. And I'm going up one hill and my legs are burning. And we climb. Think about it. We run up Vintage Road. Anybody want to run up Vintage Road? Like multiple times. And everything inside of me is burning, and I'm going like, I'm, I'm this, you know, like. And a guy behind me, I just hear him, he yells, he yells. Literally, he's behind me, and he just goes, it's hard! <laughs> I was like, yeah, but it's hard fun. He's like, you're crazy. <laughs> and he's gone. This is the Christian life. It's hard fun. Being a son or a daughter of God is fun. Eternal life is hopeful. Faith, hope, and love are good. The fruit of the Spirit are wonderful things. Joy, all of this that we carry with us. But here, it is hard. And it's okay. Because God's with us. I wasn't planning to say this. I am. I'm just closing my notes. When Daryl Rischel looks me in the eye and tells me that he's praying for me every day, and can't imagine how we hold it all together as a family. I tell him every Sunday I get to stand up here and look out. And I know every one of you is doing the same thing. It's hard. I can see your eyes. I've shed tears with you. You've shed tears with me. It's hard. But it's good. It's good. Because God is with us. Because we are not alone. And because this is what the church is supposed to be doing. Bearing one another's burdens in love. Carrying and caring for one another through hard times. Loving each other and being there for one another when otherwise it might feel like we were all alone and nobody cared. And we're doing it. I'm watching us do it. Missions team, missions team gathered on Thursday night, prayed, poured out their hearts for our global partners. Why? It is a beautiful thing to support those who are serving the Lord all over the world. I go visit with people, and I come in, and I'm visiting with a couple, and as I leave, somebody else from CNBC is coming down the driveway. 
Why? Because that's what we do. We cry together, we weep together, we mourn together. This is the life of the church. And, and friends, you're doing it. And it's not you that's doing it. It's not you that's accomplishing it. It's the Lord in and through you. And this is the life that we get to live together. And it's hopeful. And it's good. And it's powerful. And it's exciting. And it's life-giving. If you just continue reading in the text, the people that followed Jesus got to experience all kinds of incredible miracles. Life. He went around and he healed sickness and diseases. He did all kinds of miraculous things. And friends, he's still giving life to people who are hopeless today. It's who he is. It's what he does. And we're just closing right here this morning. There's no more music. I want to share a few thoughts. I love the heart of Jesus. He takes his disciples. He shows them what life looks like. Powerful things happen in his name. He doesn't stop there. He starts to teach him in chapter 5. It's so beautiful. When, they saw, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountains. He sat down. His disciples came to him. In chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' words are powerful. They're life-giving. And the Gospel's as real and relevant now as it was when you first received it. If you're here today and you're fighting, you're trying with everything in your body to save your marriage and you're trying on your own strength, let Christ be formed in you and then live broken and poured out before your spouse. Eyes on him. Christ. If you're here with me today and you're trying to parent our children, right? This is hard. And, and you're facing the challenges of teenagers or young people in your house, running around just being teenagers and young people. And you're struggling with children that are making difficult decisions or have made difficult decisions or are living in difficult lifestyles. Let Christ be formed in us. And then live broken and poured out sacrificially before our children, showing them what a life of faith Hope and love consist of walking in the better ways of Christ and watch what Jesus can do. If you're here today and you're trying to figure out how to navigate difficult family or career relationships, you're not sure how to get along with this person or that person in your place of employment, let Christ be formed in you first. To reorder the patterns and priorities of our lives around the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus. And then watch as his light shines through you, bringing peace and reconciliation to those relationships. And if you're here today and you've never heard the good news, the gospel, then I want you to know that there is hope today for you. There is love, there is light, there is a faith to be found, and there is life. And it can be found in the person of Jesus. And today, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's it. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And you'll know of the hope that entire communities like ours can cling to through the difficult seasons of life. The hope of Jesus. I would invite you not to leave here today. If you don't know the Lord, don't walk out of this room before you give your life to him. It'll change everything about your life in a good way.
if you're feeling lonely, you, you know you'll never be alone. He's with you everywhere you go, and he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and how it works in our communities. How, yes, it, it disrupts the things in our life that are comfortable. And yes, it takes us to really hard places in this world and calls us to live counterculturally in very different ways. But through it all, we can trust, we can know that you are with us because you are faithful. Your word is true. We give you glory for your son Jesus and thank you for the power and the effect of his death and resurrection. That it gives us life and gives us hope that when we turn, when we repent and confess, that he stands with open arms waiting to embrace he is there. I pray now, Lord, if there's any who are here today that have never found that hope, have never confessed with their mouth, have never given themselves to the life that we have in Christ, that it might be today that they would turn and that they would find it. And we thank you that you are faithful to forgive. Lord, as we go, Continue with us in our fellowship in a special way as we move into ABFs. We pray you would bless our gifts and our offerings as we give them our time of fellowship in the hallways and the next hour in our ABF classes. We thank you for being with us in this community time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week in Jesus, living and sharing the gospel everywhere you go. Take care, everyone.